Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau and as always we're joined by the man, the legend, Dr. Dale Rollins, the namesake for our program here and thank you for taking time to join us today. Dr. Dale, welcome. Great, it's great to be with you again Gary and look forward to uh, visiting with our audience today about uh, Really, I guess what has been my personal odyssey, personal and professional odyssey, and and why uh, why I call myself Doctor Quail sometimes. And odyssey is an operative word because that means something to you. That's right. It's a it's a long, voyageous adventure, often punctuated by sudden turns of events, not always good. And uh, so when you think of uh, the uh, the Odyssey, and uh, is that Greek or Greek mythology? I think. Uh, but the best example of, of an odyssey, I think, is one of my favorite movies, Forrest Gump. And so I tell people that I've lived my life much like Forrest Gump and uh, nothing fancy about it. And that the white feather that floated through Forrest Gump's right, life, in right. my case, that was a bobwhite feather. And so, uh, <laughs> like I said, there's, there's been, uh, we're going to talk about a few of the events and uh, things that have happened in my life. And then I have how I have parlayed those things into an adventure or an odyssey on quail. And maybe some colleagues saying, run, Dale, run at some point, right? <laughs> could, could be, absolutely. As if I make any pointed uh, comments towards deer people, it, it might be just that. <laughs> Tell us about your upgrading. Uh, you're not a native Texan, but you got here as quick as you could. Well, actually, I am a native Texan. I was born in Wellington, Texas. Very good. But I'm from Hollis, Oklahoma, which is just across the state line. Back in the I was born in 1955, and uh, Hollis didn't have a hospital, so I was literally born in, in Texas, and then uh, migrated back across the state line. I tell people sometimes uh, Hollis is a very small town. Uh, at the time that I graduated high school, I had uh, 43 students in my class. There's probably 25 now. It's it, time has not been kind to Hollis, Oklahoma, like a lot of other small towns in, in West Texas and Southwest Oklahoma. But I tell people that. Uh, that I am the second DR from Hollis, Oklahoma. Second DR. Second DR. And anybody with the University of Texas lineage knows who that first one was. That was Daryl Royal, the legendary football Very coach. Good. And Very so good. he's a native of Hollis, Oklahoma. So he put Hollis on the map, and I just hope they don't, I'm not the reason why they take it off. So. Maybe there'll be a stadium named after you at some point. <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> then uh, you, you began to take your journey. What happened next as your pursuits and your interests became more clear? <clears throat> well, I was raised five miles south of uh, Hollis, Oklahoma. Uh, that's two miles north of Red River. So I was just, I had Texas influence all my life. But at age of five, and this is just as clear in my mind as if it happened yesterday, it's one of those indelible memories that you have. At the age of five, and you know, when you begin to think, what's the earliest you can remember in your life? I can't really remember anything before I was about five years old, but I remember this. My mom and I were in our house, uh, it was during uh, the summer, probably in June. Window was open to the kitchen. There's a bird out there singing on the fence. And my mom says, do you hear that bird? It calls its name, Bob White. Nice. And so that had some kind of a tractor beam on me ever since that time. 
And uh, I tell people that now, 58 years later, it's still calling to me. Were you out with your Red Rider BB gun looking for that quail? Right, that was before I got a Red Rider. Uh, literally, I, my Christmas wishes from the time I was six till I was 16, I guess, was a new BB gun or a new pellet gun because I'd worn out the previous one. So I went through two cub rifles. <laughs> and uh, as I reflect back on those days when I was six years old, I made the money to get my first daisy cub rifle by selling flower seeds flower in seeds. Oklahoma. So I'm a flower child, I guess, from way back. <laughs> the uh, pursuits uh, education-wise, uh, did you know when you were in high school and you began to think about those interests, did you know where you were going? Well, as a reader of Outdoor Life and Field and Stream, the periodicals of the day, there, there'd always be some ads back then in the classifieds, a job in conservation for you. So I don't, at least in my generation, Every young guy that was raised out in the country wanted to be a game warden or thought about being a game warden. I got my bachelor's degree in biology from Southwestern Oklahoma State University in Weatherford, Oklahoma. And after I graduated, I learned, what do you do with a BS in biology <laughs> if you don't go to grad school? I actually did apply for a game warden position with Oklahoma Department of Wildlife Conservation. I had an interview and one of the guys on the interview table said, I had a, I was a pretty good student. Mm -hmm. He said, you've got too good of grades <laughs> to be doing this. And so... Uh, oh, game wardens aren't offended by that. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah I'm, I'm not, I'm just telling you what he told me. But uh, I went on to uh, work on a master's degree at Oklahoma State University. Well, I got up to Oklahoma State and uh, I didn't have any funding. I didn't have an advisor. I just knew that I wanted my career path, man, I was going to have to get a master's degree. And so I came to uh, my, who turned out to be my professor, and I said, I can do this project on Bob White and blue quail, wow. scale quail. Look at that. In my home county, Harmon County, Oklahoma. Wasn't really any out-of-pocket expenses for me. And uh, it was fun doing it kind of thing. So I looked at the diets, the overlapping diets between Bob Whites and blue quail. I looked at some of their parasites back then and did some other things that uh, tried to answer the, the relationship on how those two quail survive in the same habitat. Kind of research you're doing right now at exactly. Rolling Plains Quail Research right. Ranch. Yep. So it's funny uh, how that's made full circle. Deja vu all over again kind of thing. And, uh, you know, just like in Forrest Gump, when he says, Mama, what's my destiny? And then at the end of it, he says, you know, do we really have a destiny or are we just floating on the breeze like that feather? Sometimes I think a little bit of both. And as I look at my career, I would say sometimes a little bit of both. Some of that you're in charge of and you direct where the feather's gonna fly, the other times the winds come along and blow you on another path. You're a very attractive speaker for groups. They love having you at conferences. They love having you at events in which the energy and the optimism that you bring uh, helps that overall conference. Whether it be a one-day or multi-day conference, your appearance there helps them. And you didn't learn that uh, just by thinking about it. You practiced it, and there are programs like Toastmasters that really helped you polish that skill. That's right. Uh, as a speaker, and you've seen this too, you can see somebody at a conference and say, wow, that person really did a great job. He didn't use ahs, ers, you knows. He was he used the proper amount of gestures and so forth. And so when I left, I graduated from Texas Tech with my PhD in May of 1983, I'm sorry, August 1983. 
And before I left Texas Tech, I'd already signed on to be a range specialist with Oklahoma State University. And so I knew I was going to be giving presentations probably the rest of my career. And I still had a lot of gastric distress about getting up and speaking before people. I couldn't make the <laughs> butterflies fly in formation. And so uh, a colleague of mine at Texas Tech, Dr. Fred Guthrie, big name in quail management, yes, uh, Dr. So. Guthrie in, um, introduced me to a Toastmasters program. And right away you see, wow, this could really help me. And so when I moved to Oklahoma State, about a year after I'd been there, I saw in, in the paper one day where they were starting a new Toastmasters club. And I said, I need to do that. So it's just one of those self-help deals that has meant so much to me. I'm a big advocate for Toastmasters, and not only with my verbal communication, but with my written communication. People, one of the greatest compliments, I think, that I receive is when they read something or hear them, they hear me talk, they say, you read just like you talk, or you talk just like you read in the articles. And I said, well, that's the only way I know. Conversational uh, English is, is really all I know. And, and part of that was because I guess I was raised in southwestern Oklahoma. I've always been a country boy kind of thing. But uh, yeah, Toastmasters really helps you polish your ability to speak. And so when I recommend it to all my grad students, I recommend it to anybody because I recommend it to anybody whose job involves communication. That's everybody. And Dr. Dale, I think presentations probably have changed in the last five to 10 years. That audience that you spoke to 10 years ago, your methods, your style, maybe even your delivery and the technology that you're using for that presentation is different because you've kept up with what that audience wants. Absolutely. I mean, for the first two thirds of my career, you had a, a carousel of slides and uh, you walked in there, you know, and you gave your presentation with the assistance of those. And then about, and it's been about 99, as I recall, that that, trans, that technology transitioned to PowerPoints. Yes. A lot of people will say PowerPoints, not death by PowerPoint. If I've ever given the same PowerPoint program twice, it was totally by accident. I never give, I always fine tune my program a little bit. I love PowerPoint. It helps me be efficient, and uh, it's, it's just a great way to communicate. But again, a lot of people try to rely too much on their slides and not their ability to connect with their eyes or whatever and connect with the audience. And what are you learning? When you go to these groups and travel across the country and you're speaking on a topic that you're so passionate about, I suspect you learn from the audience as well and from those interactions. Oh, absolutely. There are things that they're telling you that you didn't know before you got to that meeting. I think it was Ben Franklin that said that every person that I meet is in some way my superior and if I will listen to them I can learn from them. So I, I put that to, I apply that every day and whether or not I'm calling coyotes or talking to turkeys or whistling at Bob White's. I learn from all those based on interplay between those two. One of the questions, common questions that I get and in retrospect I'm very flattered by it, I'll have a mom come up to me at the end of a presentation and they'll say, I have a 14-year-old son, he would love to have your job. What's the career path that he should follow to do this? And So those kind of conversations is why we started the Bob White Brigade back in, in 1993. And one of the advice may be get a good bird dog. That's you right. love bird dogs. Well, again, that's the difference. The, the difference between a deer hunt and a quail hunt or a turkey hunt and a quail hunt, one of them is a social deal. And it's social because you don't have to be quiet when you're quail hunting. You've got to be a spectator of what I call grand opera, and that's the, the bird dogs, especially if you've got a pair of them working, uh, like the old Bobby Tillotson song, Poetry in Motion. 
and being able to watch those dogs move across that landscape and sane that, that landscape, sane that uh, air for quail scent and the ability to watch them do that, narrow that in and then point, there's just no prettier sight to me. And you know, we're, we're always impressed with uh, athletes, for example, people like Usain Bolt or some of the Olympic gymnasts and their ability to do incredible things. Well, bird dogs do that on a daily basis. And uh, when you see that and, and when it's your bird dog, you're especially proud, you know, to watch them. And then that just builds the bond between dog and hunter. And tell us about Susie. Susie's a name that, speaking of PowerPoint, we're going to see if we were to attend your next presentation. You may have a slide or two well, about I, her 12 points of success and things right. of that sort. I had bird dogs in high school uh, until about 1978. And then when I went on to graduate school, there was about a 10-year period that I didn't have bird dogs. My bird dog had been killed. And I was too busy. I didn't, you just got too busy. I uh, became very interested in deer hunting. <laughs> I was on the verge of being just what I call another deer nut. And, and Texas has plenty of them, no, no offense, guys. But uh, in 1991, my brother-in-law up in Oklahoma, it's June of 1991, and he said, come down here and look at these bird dog puppies I've got. And I said, I ain't got time for a bird dog. He said, well, just come down here and look at them. He said, I hunted with their daddy last year and he's the best bird dog I ever saw. So I went down there and he had like six setter puppies that were about seven weeks old and he put the cane pole with a quail wing on the end of it and, and held it out there and one of them struck that pose and stole my heart. Oh my gosh. And uh, so that was, I called her Susie and she was the one that literally rekindled my energy and my focus on quail hunting because to contrast deer hunting and quail hunting, and a guy named Joe Pat Hemphill out in Coleman County Rancher told me this. He said, any guy with $30 can buy a rope and be a bull rider. It takes a lot more investment to be a quail hunter. You're like a calf roper. And so uh, the investment that you have, and again, the, the uh, camaraderie that you have with, in the field with the dog, it's just anybody that hunts with a dog knows that. Did Susie become the matriarch of, of a line of bird she dogs? She did. She did, and uh, she was... Uh, Llewellyn Setter, my brother-in-law had a French Brittany, black and white Brittany, and we're not into bloodlines or field trials or anything. We like the way Susie hunted. We like the way Gizmo, the Brittany hunted. Gizmo. So we, we crossed those two and came up with the original better, half Brittany, half Setter. That prototype was a little dog named Little Annie. I think you've probably had a chance to hunt with Little Annie. I did. And uh, what a dog. I mean, it's so smart and she was the best dead bird dog I've ever seen. What does that mean? Ability to find a wounded quail. I would uh, often say that if somebody had a, a lost bird, that uh, that bird would rather have the Royal Canadian Mounted Police on their tail than little Annie, because she wasn't coming back without them. <laughs> and since that time, we've uh, <laughs> basically, when I say we, me and my buddy Steve there in San Angelo, who has some of my offspring, uh, we've bred back to setters for the most part. So varying degrees of Brittany and setter crosses. Now the derogatory term for those is drops. Why would you want to breed those drops? I tell people after they've hunted with one of our drops, then they say, where'd you get those better bird dogs at? <laughs> <laughs> what is it, the qualities of those two breeds that together seem to be the perfect match? Well, I think uh, part of the allure of the Brittany is the retrieving. Okay. Uh, Brittany is just a natural retriever and a great retriever, um, small size. Okay. Uh, our dogs typically weigh 35 pounds kind of thing, so you can load them in the back pickup pretty easy, and it's not like you know loading an 80-pound dog. The flag on a setter, the tail, uh, that's what 
alert. That's 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 the magic of somebody that owns a setter is watching that flag, and just when that breeze is blowing and the feathers on the tail like that are just uh, a white bird dog in West Texas is really important because if it's a brown dog. You can't see them. I was going to ask. Probably yeah. certain environments and settings are better suited to that type of dog. Absolutely. The, the standard prototype is a pointer. And a pointer is a great, they're great bird dogs. They are soldiers. They are Roman foot soldiers. They, they'll hunt every day, you know, kind of they're tough. My setters, after three days, they got to have a little bit of rest. Kind I see. Of thing. But people that uh, are around my dogs, I always reflect back to one of the Bob White Brigade hunts that I took three young ladies on. We'd hunted with various people's dogs that day, but uh, this little girl from over around the Weatherford area, she said, Dr. Rollins, of all the quail, all the dogs that we've hunted with today, I like yours the best. And I said, well, why is that, Mary? She said, because they're always smiling. And so uh, my dogs love what they do. Susie's 12-point plan for success, which I wrote with Susie's assistance during during a, a one-week lull in my career there, uh, Point number 10 is be thankful that your vocation and your avocation are one and the same. And that's a commonality that I share with my bird dogs. Very nice. Very nice. One passion and I think one indelible mark you've left in the Texas natural resource community and youth, and youth leadership efforts is the Bob White Brigade and the subsequent brigade camps that have spawned from that initial, initial undertaking, what, 27 years ago? 27, Tell us about that. 27 years ago, um, in my job as an extension specialist, I was a general practitioner. I had just spoken to the line, one of the Lions Clubs in San Angelo uh, that particular day and I had to go from there to Childress that night, that's about 230 miles, had to drive up there to, to speak with volunteer leaders, 4-H volunteers on wildlife. And somewhere, and it happened for me between uh, Aspermont and Guthrie, that's a lonely stretch of Highway 83, I had what I call my Bob White Line Epiphany because literally the name Bob White Brigade came to me. Now what that mean? You know, I, I had to struggle with exactly what that meant, but uh, pretty quickly I realized that that was my cue to say, can we develop a core of teenagers? Most of the programs I give don't require a PhD in wildlife management, they're introductory level. So could we train a core of uh, interested volunteers, equip them with public speaking skills and those kinds of uh, leadership activities and then basically baptize them and say y'all go forth and serve as missionaries for conservation and uh, yeah that uh, that's I consider that the opus magnum in my career is the inception of the Bob White Brigade it's been cloned in several states we have like eight camps going now in Texas so and as you know you've been a part of those and, and helped out a lot there's been a lot of people involved with that so we've had a great network of professionals involved with that I think uh, what texasbrigades.org maybe the the website that can point people to that program if they're looking uh, down the road for some summer camp opportunities, that might be a great place to start. That's right, and, and not only for their 14 and 15 year olds, but for the adults who come to me and say, wow, wish we'd have had something like that when I was a kid. I said, there's room for you too. So you can come in and serve as what we call a covey leader and uh, experience that five day watershed event that we call Bob Brigade. Where I've spent some time with you in recent years have been at your quail appreciation days, which have really evolved and I think taken the next corner in that you're not only in rural areas, you're also doing some quail appreciation work in some urban suburban areas because you know there's interest there too. The quail appreciation concept, I tell people I've made a career out of appreciating things. 
And in 1991, I sat down with some county agents in Fort Stockton, Texas, and I said, guys, I want to hold a Predator Appreciation Day. Pallid stairs. County agents that are associated with the sheep and goat industry, they thought Rollins is really flipped out. Wrong word. <laughs> and so, but I told them, I handed one of them a dictionary. I said, look up the word appreciation. To judge with heightened awareness, to be cautiously or sensitively aware of, to value or admire highly, all those fit. And so we held a couple of Predator Appreciation Days, and then in 1997, I, I kind of got back into the quail programming more and more, and I held the first of what's now about 83 subsequent Quail Appreciation Days, six-hour workshop, judge with heightened awareness, be cautiously or sensitively aware of, to value or admire highly. That fits Bob White's to a T. And who comes to those events? Because some of our listeners may be saying, that may be where I need to be, is at some of those type of events. That's a great... Uh, introduction to becoming a what I call a student of quail. We do some more advanced kind of courses, but at this one, uh, we start off, it, it's basically a six-hour version of the Bob White Brigade. And so many of the things that I do for adults were tried and tested and developed working with 14 and 15-year-olds. I tell people we just speak a little more slowly to the adults, but uh, we use some of the same exercises. We'll have them dissecting quail and learning about the form and function of various uh, internal and external anatomy and how that makes a quail uh, adapted for its particular uh, role in life. We talk about the plants that are important. Boy, you know, we've held plant appreciation days and I'll often uh, challenge landowners, ranchers, whoever that attend. I say, how many of you can name the top five plants on your ranch? I say, if the names of plants were words, would you be a silver-tongued orator or a Neanderthal, and you hear a bunch of uh, uh, grunts. <laughs> it's, it's sad that too many of our ranchers, landowners, don't have a better appreciation of what their factory is. And that's the various, you know, they might know side oats grima, the state grass of Texas, but if you ask them what Maximilian sunflower look like, well, I don't have a clue. Uh, and all those plants are important. And if you're into quail, I tell them that every plant out there is important, but we have to understand when and why. Is there a great book by Ricky Lennox that kind of helps you uh, with that? Absolutely. There, there are several good field guides across the state, but the one that uh, Ricky Lennox, who's with the Natural Resource Conservation Service and a longtime helper with a lot of the different activities that we do, uh, that's the best one that's ever been put out, in my opinion. It's not expensive, about $25, and it's a... It's a good picture book to carry with you and you pick up and learn those plants. I just encourage landowners or other students of quail, I said, learn one plant per week. At the end of a year, and I'll give you two weeks off at Christmas, you'll know 50 plants. You'll be in the top 1% of the people you run with if you know 50 plants. You go to a Quail Appreciation Day, which I highly recommend. I think they're great experiences. They really help you get a, a basic understanding of, of some of those elements. The graduate level is quail masters. If you want to take the next step as a natural resource uh, interested professional uh, manager, quail masters may be the next fit. Right. Uh, it's like um, when you go to college or whatever as a freshman, you're in college. You don't, may not know what you want to do, but then you begin to see people or learn about this is really kind of how I want to hone my uh, career. And so we find people all the time that, uh, again, they, they learn about Bob White Brigade or Quail Appreciation Days, and we say, well, there is another level for adults. And the Quail Masters program, we started that in 2005, and that's a series of four three-day workshops. I say, essentially, it's the Bob White Brigade, but we can't work 
15, 16-year-old people like we do those 15, 16-year-olds. So we had to spread it out across four sessions. And we take them. I've got, again, this quail trap line I have extends across the state. So if we want to go to Mr. Pickens' ranch up in the Panhandle, we have access to do that as part of our quail master's curriculum. And so people can uh, see properties and, and be able to experience properties that otherwise they'd never be able to get through the gate on. Students of quail, I've always thought that's an interesting terminology. Uh, at any walk of life, you can be a student of quail if you take the time. When I uh, was going, finishing up my PhD out of Texas Tech, you have to go through five days of testing called your comprehensive exams. And so one of my, one of my uh, committee members asked me the question, what is a plant? Be specific. And that seems simple enough. I wrote for four pages, college rule notebook paper, four pages on everything I could recall about plants. Got the test back a week later, he put incomplete answer. Incomplete. And I thought, that son of a gun. And then 10 years later, that was Dr. Sam Beeson. 10 years later, uh, we lost Dr. Beeson, but he had an award that the Texas Wildlife Association called the Sam Beeson Conservation Leadership Award. And I was honored to uh, receive that in 1995, as I recall. And I always wondered why Sam said incomplete answer. Well, on the way down to San Antonio that day from San Angelo, I had a flash and I thought, I bet that's it. If you're a student of anything, every answer is incomplete. And so as when, I, when people introduce me as an expert on quail, as I'm walking up to the lectern, I'm always saying under my breath, there's a whole lot about quail I don't understand. But a student of quail has always got his antennae up and he's always got his eyes and saying, what can I learn today? Well, the next step in your evolution was the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation right. that really began uh, a journey on your odyssey uh, that was really unprecedented in many ways. That's right, and again, it it allowed me. It was kind of the uh, it was kind of the, the crown of glory, I guess. It's probably a wrong phrase, but anyway, uh, it was it was a great way to again uh, conclude. I haven't concluded my career yet, but uh, for the final third of my career gives me something to hang my hat on, ability to ask questions and hopefully answer questions that I don't think were being addressed otherwise. And so just being able to pull all that together, it's been very personally satisfying and professionally rewarding as well. A lot of opinions out there, Dr. Dale, a lot of folks uh, with their own experiences and their own understandings of the factors impacting quail, quail population successes, declines. Really, the state of Texas and AgriLife Extension Service kind of put a stake in the ground and said, we're going to study this issue. We're going to try to find out some of the answers that are maybe not yet discovered. And they call that Reversing Decline in Quail Initiative. And you're a big part of that. That's right. For the last uh, five years, we've received this special money. It was part of the Upland Game Bird Stamp Fund. And so, it's again, it's sportsmen you know, providing the dollars. So as a quail hunter, I pay $7.50 a year for a game bird stamp. And so being able to take some of those dollars that were dedicated to that and put them to the use that uh, we hope brings, comes to fruition with, with better quail populations in our case. And again, uh, the ability to be a part of that and help direct some of that uh, has been, again, professionally very rewarding. And I tell people when they say, you know, you hadn't settled that, you hadn't figured out that quail decline yet. Well, it's fire ants, you dummy, y'all know that it's fire ants. Everybody has their cause du jour, 
that they want to uh, they want to uh, say that's the reason why. Uh, I tell people that the quail decline is not a single shot. If we think in terms of a pistol, it's not a single shot. It's a revolver. There are several cylinders operating at the same time. We got to find out what the firing order, if you will, is on those. And again, how as land managers we can have some positive impacts about how it affects quail. I remember you challenged me one time on a whiteboard uh, with a group that was meeting uh, in a small room. List those items that you think are leading to quail decline. There must have been 20 to 25, and you said yes to all of them, but maybe various degrees and in different combinations, and where are the heavier contributors compared to the others? So it was an interesting visual to see everything, but not one in particular. Right. Uh I heard a long time ago at a presentation that most complaints have at least some basis in fact. So again, we, we could list 20 different potential causes of quail decline, contributors to quail decline. I could defend really any of those 20, but then again, trying to prioritize those. Now that's where you get in the arguments. And you know, what are the ones that we need to be focused on most, most uh, acutely? And where should we be directing resources and management towards? What's next in your journey? What's the next uh, opportunity in your odyssey? Well, I would like to think that I'll stay on with the, uh, with the Research Foundation for the no another five years or so. And then hopefully uh, we, we find some uh, exciting, hungry young dogs, if you will. And I got a couple of mine. And I would like to think that, that we're well-funded at that point in time where that would be a good career choice for some of those and they would come in and succeed me and have even greater success than I've had. Outstanding. I wish you well in that regard. And thank you, Dr. Dale. We appreciate you. We appreciate all that you do for us in the wildlife and natural resources community. And we appreciate you, our listeners, that have joined us today for Dr. Dale on quail. We hope you'll take time next time to be with us as we continue to discuss those issues important to quail, quail hunters, and just the Texas natural resource community. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.